you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we are in engaged in a expository study of the book of Romans. We are just in the very early stages. This is the third lesson. In the first lesson, we talked about the author of the letter, the Apostle Paul, and the circumstances under which the letter was written. And uh, we spent quite a bit of time there talking about Paul's conversion, about the timing and the place of this letter. This letter is different than some of the other letters that we have studied more recently. Uh, first and second Peter and Jude in the last year, year and a half, all were written in time of persecution, all were written in a time whenever uh, there was great distress and, and the, the government was rising up against the church. But Romans is written in a, a rather more uh, easier time. It's in a early in the, the, the development of the church. It's earlier in uh, the ministry, and it is a time whenever there's not so much persecution. And so Paul is writing this letter under different circumstances. He's not writing to a specific cause or a specific doctrine that's risen up in the church against uh, the doctrine that was taught by the apostles as Jude did or as Peter did, but he's writing more a general letter to the church in Rome. This is a letter of introduction. And it is his desire to travel to Rome and from Rome to evangelize and do missionary work through Spain. Amen. And so he is writing this letter by means of introduction. And he wants to let the Roman church know both his desire and his intention and his doctrine. Amen. What he's preaching, what he's teaching. He wants to firmly establish them in that doctrine so that when he gets there, there's a base from which he can work. So we covered all of that in the first lesson. And then we started uh, the second lesson into the first chapter. We covered the first seven verses of the first chapter, which encompasses Paul's salutation to the Romans. And in those seven wonderful verses, Paul introduced to us all of the major themes that would be used during the whole of the letter. We It was a very, very in-depth salutation, a very wonderful explanation of where we were going. But now we come to today's passage, which introduces Paul's personal interest in the Roman church. And this passage that we'll look at this morning, verses 8 through 15 of chapter 1, will give us some insight into Paul's passion for the church and his burden for the lost. This is really Paul expressing himself, and it sets the stage moving from that salutation. It sets the stage for the thesis statement of the letter, which we'll get to uh, next week when we'll talk about verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. But we'll begin today in verse 8. If you have your Bible want to turn with me, uh, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Verse 8 reads this way. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So Paul explains, we said this this passage is about explaining his purpose for writing, and he starts with his interest in the Roman church and his great desire to visit them. As with most of his epistles, he includes a thanksgiving and a prayer at the beginning. He first offered thanksgiving to God for the good report throughout the whole world of the faith of the Roman church, 
Rome is the central city of the empire, and the reports of the growth of the Rome, of the Christian church in Rome has gone forth everywhere. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody is hearing about it. What a tremendous testimony for the church in Rome. Their faith, their Christianity is spoken of throughout the world, not just the church world, But the secular world has noticed what's happening in Rome. The world has set up and taken notice of the fact that there's something transpiring in the city of Rome that is noteworthy. Lives are being changed. People are being transformed. The very culture of Rome is being impacted by this Christian church. Notice this. The church in Rome wasn't known for its programs. They weren't known for their social efforts. They weren't known for the many ministries of the church. They were known for their faith. Now, I have no doubt that the church in Rome ministered to the poor. I have no doubt that the church in Rome had had ministry efforts for the needy of their day. I have no doubt that they had a large variety of things that they did to benefit the, the society and the citizens of Rome. But it is remarkable that the people around the world aren't speaking about their programs. They're not speaking about their benevolence efforts. They're not speaking about everything they're doing in, in the community. They're talking about their faith. The world has taken notice of their Christianity. The word faith here relates to the body of beliefs. It's their doctrine. It's what they're preaching. It's what they're teaching. It's that faith that was once delivered to the saints. The world is talking throughout the whole of the Roman Empire about this radical new church in Rome and their their faith, their doctrine, what they're preaching and what they're teaching and what it what is happening when they preach it and what's happening when they teach it when they speak the name of Jesus, uh, demons flee. When they speak the name of Jesus, uh, those that were bound are set free. When they preach in the name of Jesus, uh, lives are being transformed. Uh, That's what they're telling all over the, the empire of Rome. It's not bad press. It's good press. Can you believe what's happening in Rome? Can you believe what's taking place there? There, There's a city there that's being impacted by a church. Uh, There's a doctrine there that's taking that city like a wildfire. Amen. It's spreading everywhere. It's spreading into every corner of society. Every segment of that culture is being impacted by that church. It sounds like the kind of church that I want to be a part of. That sounds like the kind of church that I want to see here in Lake City, a church that is known for the genuineness uh, of what it believes, uh, not just known for its programs, not just known for the things it does for the community, but known for its doctrine. Uh, What we have, my friend, uh, is real. I said this Holy Ghost power is authentic. Uh, It's genuine. Uh, There's power in this house to change lives. Uh, There's power here that those that are bound can be set free. There's power here to mend the brokenhearted. Uh, There's power here to put marriages back together again. There's power here to change lives. We're known for a lot of things. But what we should be known for 
is our doctrine. What we ought to be known for is the power and the efficacy of the name of Jesus Christ. What we ought to be known for is that when we preach truth, uh, something happens. Uh, that when sinners walk through those doors, uh, they feel the presence of God uh, and it transforms their lives. This is a place where people can get their lives back on track. This is a place that when you're broken and you're hurt and you're down and discouraged and you don't know where else to turn, there's help here, there's hope here, there's life-changing power here, and that's what the church ought to be known for. Above all else, this city, this region, our world ought to know that there's a real, genuine, authentic, apostolic church in Lake City. That there's a group of people that know how to pray until heaven comes down. There's a group of people that have faith in the name of Jesus Christ and understand, amen, this doctrine that was once delivered to us. Uh, this isn't a frail thing. This isn't a weak thing. It works. Uh, if you'll preach it, uh, it works. Uh, if you'll proclaim it, it works. Uh, if you'll share it, uh, it changes lives. Uh, it ought to be noised abroad about the church in Lake City, just like it was noised abroad uh, about the church in Rome, uh, that Jesus uh, is in the house uh, and we're Jesus is. Uh, anything is possible. That kind of report rises from revival. That kind of report rises from the fire of a sovereign move of God. The good reputation of the Roman church came from the fact uh, that they were having a spiritual impact on their community. It came from the fact uh, that there was revival taking place. Uh, it didn't come from the fact that they were having an economic impact. Uh, it didn't come from the fact that they were having a social impact. Uh, it came from the fact uh, that there was something spiritual spiritual taking place uh, in that community. Uh, let it be said of us. Let it be said of this church. Uh, let it be said of, of this group of people uh, that there's revival fire burning here, that the anointing of God uh, permeates everything uh, this church does. In our, in our outreaches, in our benevolence efforts, in our, our, our social efforts, and the things we do to impact this community, let them be saturated uh, by the power and authority uh, of the Word of God uh, and by the name of Jesus Christ, uh, that every soul we come into contact with, that every life that we touch uh, would be impacted by more than just the, the effort of the church, uh, but by the Spirit, uh, by the anointing of the Holy Ghost. By the grace of God, let us determine to never settle for ordinary church, to never settle for business as usual. Let us strive for genuine apostolic revival. Perhaps one day it will be said of this church somewhere in eternity that it was noised abroad throughout the whole world of their faith of the doctrine they preached, that Jesus was in the house, that there was a place somewhere over in a corner of northeast Arkansas where you could go uh, and you could be set free, uh, that there was a place somewhere in a small city in northeast Arkansas that the truth was preached uh, and that lives were changed uh, and that everybody knew uh, you can go to that house uh, and it'll never be the same again for you. Amen. Paul was thankful the Roman church had that kind of testimony. He said, I thank God 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Just as God offered grace through Christ, Paul offered thanks to God through Christ. Christ is the mediator between God and man. According to Robertson's word pictures, the word through here conveys the idea of a mediator. The word literally refers to a conduit. Something goes in one end and comes out the other. Paul directed his thanks towards God through Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Verse 9 says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. First of all, for God is my witness. After his thanksgiving, Paul assured the Romans of his great burden for them as demonstrated by his prayer on their behalf. And he said God could bear witness that he prayed unceasingly for the Romans. Oh my. What about us, church? Can we say the same thing? You can fool a whole lot of people about your prayer life. You see, that's private. Nobody really knows whether you pray or not. But what if God was called to give a testimony of whether or not you pray? What if God was called to give testimony of whether or not you, you take the time uh, to get that spirit of God stirred up uh, inside of you and to pray for the needs uh, of your brothers and your sisters? Would he testify for you like Paul said he would for him that you pray without ceasing? I'm going to tell you something. If we want to be the kind of church that we were just now talking about, if we want to be the kind of church that it gets noised abroad, that when you come through those doors, anything can happen. Amen. That in this house, among this people, amen, when they begin to pray, and when they begin to worship, and when that preacher begins to preach, uh, amen, the dynamic spiritual power of the Holy Ghost is turned loose, uh, and anything can happen. If we want to be that kind of church, uh, then we must be a people of prayer. That's where the life-changing anointing of God flows from. It comes from prayer. Now, there are a couple of things that need to be noted here about prayer. First of all, this passage is a powerful witness to the importance of intercessory prayer. Although Paul had never met the Roman believers, he deemed it important and worthwhile to pray for them, not just casually, not just every now and then, but constantly. There's power in your prayers. Let me tell you something. Prayer can go anywhere that God can go. Prayer can do anything that God can do. Whenever we begin to recognize, when we begin to understand the power of prayer, if we ever truly utilize prayer the way that it can be utilized, it can do anything that God can do. It can go anywhere that God can go. There are no limits to prayer. If we fail to pray, we cut ourselves off from one of the greatest weapons that God has ever given us. Paul believed in the power of prayer. He believed that prayer could go where he had never been because he's never set foot in Rome. But he prays for the Roman church. We should be just as vigilant in our prayers. Let me tell you something. There are missionaries in foreign countries where you and I may never go. But when we pray, our prayers go where we can't go. 
And in prayer, we have the power and the authority to have an impact on their world. You ought to walk down that hall sometime, and you ought to lay your hand on the pictures of those missionaries. You ought to read their names and the countries they're in, and you ought to begin to pray for the unction and anointing of the Holy Ghost to be turned loose because your prayer can go where you can't go. It can have an impact where, where you'll never be able to make a difference personally and physically. Your prayer can make a difference spiritually. I understand that in our lives, in our day-to-day living, there are circumstances that are beyond our control. We can't influence them. We can't change them. We can't do anything about them. But our prayers can. Amen. Whenever you throw up your hands and say, what in the world can I do about this? I'll tell you what you can do about this. You can pray because your prayer can do what you can't do. Your prayer can go where you can't go. Uh, It utilizes a power. Amen. That's greater than you are. Amen. When you begin to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, anything. Is possible. Secondly, there is some scriptural basis here for prayer lists. Paul always mentioned the Romans when he prayed. Always. That implies that he was disciplined about his approach to prayer. It wasn't just a haphazard affair where he got down on his knees and and prayed about whatever happened to pop into his head. If that were the case, then, then one would have to reason that he would have occasionally failed to mention the Romans. But Paul said he always prayed for the Romans. Let me tell you something. There is absolutely nothing wrong with maintaining a prayer list. There's absolutely nothing wrong with taking the time to sit down and write out some things that you know you need to be praying about. There's absolutely nothing wrong with making a list on a sheet of paper or in a notebook somewhere of things that you are praying about. Amen. And then whenever you pray, go down through the list and mention those things and put those things before God. And then when he moves, make a notation somewhere of a testimony. This is what I've been praying and this is what God has done. And and keep uh, because that's a source uh, of your faith and your confidence. Uh, he who promised is, is faithful. Amen. There's nothing wrong with taking a list with you into your prayer closet. There's nothing wrong with becoming disciplined about the way you pray. Not just disciplined about the time you pray. That We, we have such a hard time establishing a prayer time and getting disciplined about the time. I'm going to tell you something about Paul. I don't know when he prayed, but I know he approached it with a certain amount of discipline. I know that when he went there, there were certain things that he was going to pray about every single time he prayed. If you would take the time, my friend, to become disciplined about your prayer life, not just about the prayer time, but about the things that you pray about, You won't regret it. I promise you, you'll draw strength from it. You'll draw 
insight from it. You'll sit down to pray. In the, that doesn't mean the Holy Ghost can't move. That doesn't mean God can't take over your prayer time. That doesn't mean you sit down and you go through your laundry list and that's praying. That means where you get down to pray and you get into the presence of God and you start going through that list and you let the Spirit lead you and you let the Spirit pray through you and you let the anointing of God flow through you and then you thumb back a page or two and you look at that and you say, you know, I was praying for this and God worked it out and you begin to praise Him for it and you begin to remind him, Lord, you've done it before. I know you can do it again. There's something in that that will build your faith, that will encourage you, and that will be powerful in your prayer life if you'll let it happen. Paul can say with confidence that God knows that he never fails to pray and he never fails to mention the Romans when he prays. That, my friend, is a remarkable thing. He said, whom I serve in the Spirit. Amen. The, the text says, for God is my witness, whom I serve in the Spirit. Paul served God in the Spirit, implying the service of the whole man, not just the body and not just the soul, but he served God in the Spirit. He didn't serve God merely from his human effort. He didn't serve God merely from his human personality, but from the innermost depths of his spiritual being, he served God. Adam Clark said, Paul probably opposes here spiritual service to external service. The Jewish service to God was carnal, but his service to God was spiritual. He's saying, my religion, my faith is not a, a religion of ceremonies, but it is one that acknowledges the life and the power of the Spirit. It is one that experiences the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, amen. What I do, I don't just do out of tradition. What I do, I don't just do out of vain repetition. Uh, amen. I do it under the unction and anointing of the Holy Ghost. I serve God in the Spirit. This service unto God is a spiritual service. And that spiritual service affects my whole being. I serve him in my flesh. I serve him in the carnal things that I do, but it originates in the spirit that is placed inside of me. Amen. There's something living on the inside. It's not just tradition. It's not just repetition. I do it out of a, a spiritual motivation. He's saying my religion, it's not just something external to me. It's not just a, a carnal service that is empty and hollow, but it's something that is spiritual. It's something that is real. Amen. When I get down and pray, the Holy Ghost stirs up inside of me. Amen. And whenever I go through my day, I feel His Spirit leading me and guiding me and directing me. I serve God with my whole spirit. Everything I've got. Church, we ought to strive to serve God in the same manner. We ought to strive to serve God in the same way. Too many are serving Him carnally. Too many are serving Him in 
ceremonies and traditions and and vain repetition and going through the motions. You can sit on an apostolic pew, amen, and serve him in tradition and serve him in ceremony and just go through the, the motions and do what you know you ought to do and sing the right song and wear the right clothes and act the right way and be as far away from him in your heart, amen, be, be, be totally uh, dead to that whole spiritual reality. My friend, you can be backslid on a church pew. But Paul said, I serve him from the spirit. There's something inside. There's something real. But let me tell you, the world isn't looking for tradition. The world isn't looking for ceremony. The world isn't looking for a religion that has all the trappings. The world is looking for something that is spiritual. It's looking for something that is real. It's looking for something that is life-giving. Jesus said, he that believeth on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's what the world is looking for. They're looking for somebody that's serving God out of the depths of the Spirit. Man, we ought to serve him the same way. You ought to stir up that gift inside of you. Finally, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with the Spirit, who I serve with my Spirit in the gospel of His Son. The gospel of His Son. Paul served God in the gospel of His Son. David Bernard writes about this verse that the only way we can truly serve God today is by obeying and spreading the gospel of His Son. The good news that God came in flesh as the Son. And that the Son died for the sins of the whole world. The only way we can serve Him is in that gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as signified by repentance, water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's how you serve Him. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Amen. So Paul said, I want to come to you. I'm making request of God. Amen. And if I come, it's going to be by the will of God. At the time of the letter, Paul's praying that God will let him somehow come to Rome and he he has a desire to go there and to establish a base there and to do a missionary work around in in Spain and outside of Rome but to establish his base there in Rome but he prayed it and he desired it within the will of God this demonstrates not only the importance of prayer which we just talked about but the importance of praying for the will of God All prayer should be subject to the condition that Jesus placed on it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of our plans should be subject to the condition of God's will. Paul wanted fervently to go to Rome. Paul wanted fervently to preach the gospel in Spain. But Paul was an humble servant of God and he recognized that his future was in God's hands and he prayed for God's will. It didn't matter what Paul wanted. Paul wanted it very badly. Paul had a great desire to go, but it didn't matter what Paul wanted. He prayed for God's will. We ought to live our lives in the same way. 
Amen. We ought to, you shouldn't make a major decision in your life without consulting God. You shouldn't make a major decision in life without praying, Lord, what is it that you will? What is it that you desire? What is it that you want? Paul said, I know what I want. I've got a great desire to go to Rome, but that isn't what matters. What matters is what does God want? Let us strive to walk in the will of God. Let us strive to walk according to God's plan and God's purpose for life. You understand he has a plan for you. You understand he has a purpose for you. He is the one that directs the footsteps of the righteous man. He orders where you walk. He's got a plan for your life. Amen. Before you run off and go do something, you ought to take the time to consult him and say, Lord, is this in your will? Because if it's your will, I want to do it. But if it's not your will, I don't matter how bad I want to be there. If it's not your will, I don't want anything to do with it. That's the way we ought to be about everything we do. Verses 11 and 12 go together. I'm going to read them together and then, and then finish you put verse 11 up first. But it says, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. So we learn in verse 11 that Paul desired to visit the Roman church to impart to them some spiritual gift. He's not talking about one of the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about this, this spiritual gift that he wants to impart to them as a fuller understanding of truth. This spiritual gift will help establish them in the truth. That's what he wants to do. He wants to go and impart to them this spiritual gift of understanding, the revelation of truth. Verse 12 starts with the phrase, that is. That phrase is a grammatical tool to introduce a further explanation of the previous verse. Instead of just saying that, he wanted to go to Rome because he had a spiritual gift for them. Paul wants to clarify that they also have one for him. He desires to be blessed by them even as he desires to bless them. Their mutual faith will encourage one another. Let me tell you something. We need Christian fellowship. We need the blessing of communion with those of like precious faith. In many ways, Christianity is about community. Together, we encourage one another. Together, we strive to make heaven our home. Together, we comfort one another in the hardships and trials of this life. And Paul recognized this. And Paul had a great respect for it. He wants to make sure that the readers of this letter, when it gets to Rome, understand that his vision isn't just about what he's going to impart to them. He isn't just coming because he wants to give something to them, but it's also about what he's going to receive from them. It could have been tempting for Paul to assume on the basis of his status as an apostle that he had much to give but little to receive. Paul was wiser than that, though. He recognized the fact, amen, that there was something that he was going to get back out of this journey. He was, not only was he humble in his service towards God, but he was humble in his service towards those to whom he preached. 
in spite of his great wisdom, in spite of his great experience, in spite of his apostolic calling, he didn't treat those people in Rome as if they were beneath him in any way. He believed that he and they could mutually encourage each other. Paul recognized the blessing of Christian fellowship. And even more than that, he wasn't too proud to acknowledge the fact that he needed it. I want to get something from you that I need. I'm going to get something from you that's going to strengthen me, that's going to bless me. Whenever I come to Rome, I'm not just coming to stand high and mighty and impart to you some spiritual revelation, but I'm going to get something by being there that's going to be food for my soul, that's going to strengthen me, that's going to encourage me. Our mutual faith, when I get together with the people of God, there's something there that strengthens my soul. There's something there that lifts me up and then encourages me. And even the apostles, so Paul, standing at the pinnacle of his ministry, as high as you want to get, amen, recognizes the fact, I need that. I need to be in the fellowship of other believers. I need to go to church. I need to be there around the people of God. I need to be along with other people around other people who have the same struggles I have, that are fighting the same battles I'm fighting. They're up against the same enemy I'm up against. I need to hear their testimony. I need to hear how God has healed them. I need to hear how God has delivered them. I need to hear how God has strengthened them because we we encourage each other mutually. Your faith strengthens my faith. Together we get something from it. We take great pride in being autonomous. We take great pride in being self-sufficient. We don't need anybody else's help. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But if we aren't careful, our self-centered pride will cut us off from the greatest resource that God has given us. That fellowship, that communion, like precious faith. When we come together, there's something here that you can't get anywhere else. Paul recognized that. And Paul needed it. And could I be so bold as to tell you if Paul needed it, then you need it, and I need it, we need it, we need each other. We need the fellowship of the body of Christ. We need the comfort of community. It's a resource you can't find anywhere else. You get something here. You get something in this house. You get something in this fellowship of believers that you're not going to get anywhere else. That's why it worries, Pastor, when you fall into the habit of casually missing church. I understand when life gets in the way. I understand when work gets in the way. I understand when there are circumstances that are going to arise. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not going to browbeat anybody for for the occasional situation that comes up. You know about it. I know about it. It's all good. But whenever you get in that place where week after week after week after week after month after month after month after the, 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 the church, it's it's not that it's not that it hurts my feelings that you're not here. It's that it hurts my spirit because I know there's something here that you can't get anywhere else. Oh, but pastor, I read my Bible and I pray and I'll be all, no, you won't, my friend. If Paul needed it, you need it. If Paul needed it, I need it. 
Amen. There's something here you're not going to get anywhere else. We need to be comforted by our mutual faith together. It's about community. Amen. Verse 13 says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Paul begins this verse with one of his favorite expressions. I don't want you to be unaware. I would not have you be ignorant. You read the writings of Paul, you're going to see that over and over and over again. The thing that he wanted them to know was that he had often planned to visit Rome. He had all, he had a desire. We talked about the will of God. He said, I wanted to do this for a long time. But until now, I've been hindered. That's what the word let hitherto means. That, that let is the Greek word for hindered. And, and it, there may even be the implication that it was hindered by the will of God. That, that God didn't will it. Not just that circumstances got in the way, but that God never opened that door. And Paul said, I'm not going where God doesn't let me go. So I've desired it, I, I've wanted it, I've hungered for it, I have a I have a burden to come to you, but up until now I have been hindered in that burden. His motive for wanting to visit the Roman church is stated here in verse 13. As the apostle to the Gentiles, he wanted spiritual fruit among this, this foremost of Gentile cities. He, he wanted to be able to to go there and get converts and preach the truth and, and reap a harvest there as he had among other Gentiles and other places. That was his desire to go to Rome. Verse 14 says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So Paul labors under a great obligation to preach the gospel to all mankind. He considers his ministry as not just the impartation of a gift, but the payment of a debt. A debt is compulsory. You're obligated to satisfy it. You're obligated to pay it back. Paul sees himself as a debtor to the gospel. He is compelled to reach the lost because he owes a debt that he cannot pay. What a powerful idea. We receive grace that we did not deserve. We owed a debt that we could not pay. And Jesus paid that debt for us. At Calvary, he paid the price that we could never pay. And when we repented of our sins uh, and we were baptized in his name and filled with the Spirit, uh, he remitted those sins. Uh, he washed that all away. He paid our debt. We can't ever pay that back. We owe a debt that we can't pay. Paul said, now I owe a debt to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He paid for what I couldn't pay for myself. So I owe it to the whole world. I owe it to every man, woman, and child that lives. I owe it to every lost soul to share with them this wonderful truth that I have discovered. I'm a debtor, he said. And by mentioning both Greeks and barbarians, Paul includes everyone. To the Greeks, everyone else was a barbarian. That'd be you and me. The inclusion of both Greeks and barbarians 
encompasses the whole world, as does wise and unwise, and we fall in that category too somewhere. I'll let you decide where you lay in there. No one is excluded. Paul is a debtor to every man. He owes it to them to share it with them. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't deserve it. Ananias came to him under the inspiration of the Spirit of God when Ananias, if he'd, if he'd really listened to what his heart said, probably would have got as far away from Paul as he could because Paul had a reputation of killing men like Ananias. But Ananias came to him and Paul recognizes, I owe a debt that I'll never be able to pay. I owe it to every man, woman, and child that lives in this world to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Because of his intense, God-given burden to preach to the entire world, Paul was ready with everything that was in him to preach in Rome. He eagerly desired to witness in the capital at the largest city of Rome, of Paul's world, that, that Roman city, that place where people from all across the world lived. Uh, he had a desire. He said, I owe a debt to every man. I owe a debt to every nationality. I owe a debt to every people. For someone who has a worldwide burden like Paul, that multinational city of Rome has to be an irresistible attraction. I can go there and I can preach to men, women, and children all over the world. Everywhere. So Paul is saying, everything in me desires to preach the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is in his blood. He can't refrain from it. He can't get away from it. It's not something he can turn on and turn off. Some of us turn on our Christianity and turn it off. We turn on our church side and we turn it off. And we, we compartmentalize our lives. And, and we're, we're church folks on Sunday, but on Monday, Tuesday, we just do our own thing. And then Wednesday comes along, we, we get back in our church mode the Thursday and Friday and Saturday, and, and, and we compartmentalize things. Paul, Paul said, this is all I am. This is all I do. This is everything there is about about me. I'm never off duty. I'm never excused from it. I'm constantly involved in it. Everything inside of me yearns to discharge a little more of that debt that I owe to all of humanity, that debt that I owe to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel. There's a contrast of sorts here between verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, Paul presents his burden to the ministry as a duty, as something that he is obligated to do. One would look at a duty as a compulsion, as something that is not born of desire, but is born of necessity. That's a duty. But in verse 15, Paul reveals his attitude towards that obligation. Instead of considering it a burden that he has to bear, a duty that he has to carry out, he is eager to fulfill it. He is ready with everything that is inside of him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He desires the opportunity to preach the gospel. He's yearning for the chance. Everything inside of him hungers and desires for that opportunity. But 
prophet Jeremiah said the word of God was like a fire shut up in his bones. It was impossible to deny. It was impossible to ignore. And he was compelled to share that word that God had given him. Paul, too, was duty-bound to preach the gospel. But like Jeremiah, it was a duty that he embraced with a passion. He's eager to go. He's eager to share the gospel. He's eager to preach to anyone who will hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? The question that is before us this morning is simple. How could we be any less faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? We too have been saved by the incredible grace of God. We didn't deserve it any more than Paul deserved it. We didn't earn it any more than Paul earned it. We're just as much debtors to the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul was. And we too should feel compelled to reach our world with the gospel. We ought to be just as eager as Paul was to reach someone, to tell someone, to share what God has done in our lives. This is our primary calling. This is why we were born into the family of God. Our commission is to go ye therefore and make disciples. Go preach. Go teach. Go tell somebody. Go share your testimony. Listen, friend, it works. If you'll just tell, you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to quote chapter and verse. You don't have to know how to, how to go through all, all the, everything the preacher goes through. All you gotta do is stand and look somebody eyeball to eyeball and tell them, this is what God did for me. I was an alcoholic, but I'm not anymore. I was bound to drugs, but I've been set free. Nicotine ruled my life. But when the Holy Ghost came in, He washed me clean. I used to be a pervert. I used to be bound up in pornography. I used to be wrapped up in all kinds of sin and all kinds of illicit lifestyle. But when God got a hold of me, He changed me. Tell your testimony. Share it with somebody. Tell somebody what God has done for you. I believe this morning that the passion that Paul displays about his ministry comes from that understanding of how he serves God. Going back to the verse where he said, I serve God with my spirit. I have a question for you. Do you serve Him in your spirit or do you serve Him in vain tradition? Because the Spirit will compel you to reach your world. The Spirit will ignite the passion that Paul had, that fervency, that desire, that, that unquenchable, unshakable passion to tell somebody what God has done. That rises from the Spirit. But tradition will be content to go through the motions while the world slips into eternity. Tradition will be content 
to just just go through and just do whatever you have to do to get by to just get lost in the routine and the ritual of religion and not really be concerned about your world. The Spirit will drive you to prayer. The Spirit will drive you to intercession. The Spirit will drive you to witness. The Spirit will drive you to testimony. But tradition will drive you to ceremony. Tradition will drive you to vain rituals. To repetition. The gauge today. Whether you're serving God in your spirit. Or in your flesh. Is your passion for the lost. The gauge today. Of whether your service to God is spirit driven. Or carnal. Is your passion for lost souls. Can you really stand and say, Pastor, I feel it like Paul felt it. Something inside of me that won't let me sleep at night. I feel the unction of the Holy Ghost right now. There's something inside of me that, that, that won't let go of me that's got me stirred up. Amen. I have a desire to reach my world. I have a desire to reach the lost. I can't get away from it. I can't escape it. My friend, if you can't testify to that, maybe you need to find a place of prayer this morning and you need to say, Lord, stir up the Spirit. Stir up that gift that's inside of me. Stir up that anointing of the Holy Ghost in my life. Perhaps I've slidden into tradition. Perhaps I've slidden into that vain repetition. Perhaps Perhaps I've gotten lost in the ceremony of doing all the things I know how to do and lost that real passion that comes from the power of the Holy Ghost. I'm calling this church to prayer on this Sunday morning. Would you find a place and would you pray until you're seized by the same kind of passion that seized Paul? Would you find a place in an altar this morning? Would you bow your face in the presence of God? And would you tell him, Lord, I want you to stir up. I want you to, I want you to stir up that gift inside of me. I want you to revive that passion in my soul. I can't afford. My world is lost. I've got lost family members. I work with people that are lost. There are people, my neighbors on my street uh, that are lost. Uh, amen. And I can't afford to be casual about this. I can't afford to be content uh, with the tradition and the ceremony of religion. I want to know that spiritual desire that comes.